Welcome to the Sunday Morning Bible Study at Whitestone Christian Fellowship, taught by Pastor Bob Lorenz. We're located in the village of Victor, a little southeast of Rochester, New York. Pastor Bob teaches line by line and verse by verse from the Word of God. Now, let's join this week's Sunday Morning Bible Study, already in progress. Well, once again, we welcome you to Whitestone Christian Fellowship this morning. If you are just tuning in on the internet, we ask your uh, we ask your patience with us. <laughs> we ask your your prayers for us, and we ask that you would just go before all of us and yourselves uh, as we go through the scriptures today. Our reading this morning is from Math, uh, from Malachi chapter four. We'll read verses five and six together. And then we'll continue on in the main service and the teaching of Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, where we left off last week. And we'll go up to chapter 17, verse 13. It's entitled, The Future is Here. And as you'll see, it is an exercise in prophetic word in Jesus' teachings and his forgiveness and his love as well. So please turn to Malachi chapter 4 and read with me verses 5 and 6. The prophet writes, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. What an interesting statement that Malachi writes for us here. Under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he reminds us that at the time of the end, he's going to be sending Elijah the prophet. He's going to be sending them before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And we usually look at that and we say, well, the, the end times are certainly great and they're also dreadful. But there are two, two different days here. There is a great day of the Lord. When Jesus came from Bethlehem, or, I'm sorry, he came to Bethlehem, came from heaven to Bethlehem to bless us. That is a great day to think about. There's also a dreadful day of the Lord, which we find in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment. It's easy to skip over the duplicity of this phrase. There is a great day and there is a dreadful day, a day of judgment. And it alludes to Jesus' two advents into the world. His first from Bethlehem and his second as he comes again at the end of the world. But it's not quite the end of the world because he comes and he reigns for a thousand years from his throne, the throne of David in Jerusalem. That's an exciting time when restoration takes place on the earth. Not only in the earth itself, but restoration of relationships with men and women, with children. And it's interesting that it says here that he turns the father's hearts to the children. It tells us that during the end times, the father's hearts are not going to be towards their children. And the children's hearts are not going to be towards the father's. There will be disrespect going both ways. And I think we're seeing some of that in our society and in our cultures around the world today. This is an important, an important prophecy that Malachi has given us here. He says, I will send you, Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. He has a purpose, and that is to turn people's hearts back to their families. That's restoration. And to turn people's hearts back to the Lord himself. That's also re restoration. We can see the need for it in our culture today. 
Indeed, there has always been a need for that to happen throughout history. In Matthew chapter 16, we find that Jesus has rebuked the blind Pharisees. They asked for a sign from heaven and they ignored all the signs that were had come before. Jesus makes no he makes no bones about it. He calls them hypocrites. The leadership of the church of the temple. He calls them hypocrites because they don't do as they tell the people to do. They rule over the people and cause fear to come into their hearts if they don't follow the things of the things of the elders of the, of the temple. We also see that uh, there is a teaching on the leaven, which he warns the apostles of. He says, "Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees." because it is hypocrisy. In, in Matthew 7, verse 1, we all have, we're all familiar with the phrase and the, and the verse that says that thou shalt not judge lest ye be judged. And so everybody believes that Christians are not supposed to judge other people. But when you look at the rest of the chapter, Paul tells us how to judge and how to discern other people. Are these going to be people that are going to draw you close to Jesus, or are they going to be people that are going to draw you back into the world? Verses 2 and 3 of that same chapter continue and said, you know, because whatever measure you met out to others will be measured to you. So if you're, if you're judging and discerning by a double standard, that becomes problematic. He tells us to judge righteous judgment, and the only righteous judgment is the judgment of God. We have, a, we have an obligation to judge, not to condemn. Condemnation does not belong, belong to us. And maybe judging is, is the wrong word here, but it's the word in the Scriptures that we should not judge. But we certainly should be discerning the spirit of those that we surround ourselves with. We should be paying attention. Are they offering us hope and comfort? Or are they offering us criticism? Or are they offering us just warnings and no hope, no remedy for it? for whatever ails the earth in our society. There's just so much in this chapter that <clears throat> it follows here that beginning in, uh, beginning in verse 20, after he had revealed himself to the apostles, Peter had already declared that he believed that Jesus was the Son of the true and the living God, the Messiah, the one they had long waited for. And in verse 20, he tells them, Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ, the anointed one that they had waited for. Don't tell anybody. It's not because he didn't want them to know. It's because Peter had declared that he was the Christ, he was the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, good, it was not flesh and blood that revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says, don't tell anybody that I'm Jesus the Christ. They have to come to that conclusion themselves by seeing the works, by reading of the works, by experiencing the works by seeing them in others and experiencing them in our own lives as well. It's important for us to come to that decision in ourselves with the Holy Spirit leading us. So he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was the Christ because we all have to come to that conclusion ourselves. And in verse 21, as we begin our teaching this morning, 
It says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again on the third day. Jesus doesn't want us to go into the future blindly. He didn't want his disciples and apostles to be doing that either. And I differentiate between the two because there are 12 apostles and all of the others were disciples, followers of him. The the apostles were handpicked by Jesus from among the population. Handpicked. It began with Andrew and Peter. And all the way down, even through his own, some of his own half-brothers, James and Jude, he chose them as the leaders of the church. So he begins to tell them about the fact that he has to go unto Jerusalem, how he must go to Jerusalem. And there he would suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, the leaders of the temple of Judaism, and be killed and then be raised again the third day. Now here's impulsive Peter. Peter, the one that just a few verses before, I think it was in in verse 13 of this chapter, Peter declared him to be the Son of God, the Son of the living God. And then Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Really? (laughs) Rebuke the Son of the living God? He began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. You can't let this happen, Lord. This can't possibly be the Father's will. And yet here he is, the Son of the Father, knowing full well what the will of the Father is, because it's His will also. And He just got done saying that He must go into Jerusalem. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. Read Isaiah 52 and 53. Read Psalm 23. There are a whole grouping of messianic psalms if you want to Spend some time and look those up. They're wonderful, warm, and humbling passages in the Scriptures. That Jesus would go through that, would write about it beforehand. He would write about His resurrection in in Psalm 116. Maybe Maybe Psalm 16, I can't remember. It's one of those, either 16 or 116. It's an important issue to know that Jesus Christ wants us to know the things that are coming ahead in our lives, in our history, in our future. So Jesus says, or Peter says to Jesus, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. You can't let this happen. You can't, you can't suffer. You can't be killed. Now, hidden in there is a little bit of fear on Peter's part. Peter knows that he can do nothing without Jesus. He knows that he can't walk on the water without Jesus. He knows that he can't do anything without Jesus. And if Jesus says he's going to be killed, then Peter turns that inward. He says, what am I going to do? Lord, what are we all going to do without you? But he missed all of the scriptures of old that reminded us that he would rise on the third day. Peter's looking at hopelessness, and Jesus is saying, Good, (laughs) I'm giving you hope through the resurrection. I'm putting the flesh to death so that the Spirit may live, and that's what you need to do too. If we're following Jesus, that's what he calls us to do. 
So here's Jesus' response to Peter. After he says, oh, that can't happen to you, Lord. But he turned and said unto Peter, get, me, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God and those that be of men. You're not discerning the things or the will of God versus the will of man. We all have interpersonal relationships with other people. We hate to see them suffer. We hate to see them hurt. We certainly hate to see them pass on. But it is the will of God that that happens, for it is, it is written. It's, it's determined for once for men to die, and after that, the judgment. That's the natural man. For believers, the judgment takes place on the cross, and entrance into heaven comes after death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So here we have Peter, one moment he's declaring the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the next he's, he's promoting the philosophy of Satan. Don't let this happen. Don't let this happen. You can't suffer. No wonder Jesus says, you're an offense to me, Peter. Get thee behind me, Satan, because Peter is exhibiting the, the worldly view of relationships that they should never end. Well, if you're born again and you're in heaven after, after you've passed, then the relationships never end. You're in eternity with your loved ones if they too are believers. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, do you want to follow Jesus? Any man. It's not just the disciples. If any man will come after me, do you want to follow Jesus? If you want to follow me, then here, let him deny himself. Reckon the old man dead, the old fleshly desires. The old fleshly relationships. The old fleshly thoughts. Reckon those things dead. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If we're following Jesus, then what does his cross represent? The sins of the world the reasons he was, he was put on the cross, the reasons that God decided this was how the sins of the world were paid for. This is absolution. This is forgiveness. This is salvation. This is hope for all mankind. Deny yourself. Take up your cross One can only imagine the weight of that cross since it represented the sins of the world from the beginning of time to the end of time. That was on the Lord's shoulders. And He took it upon His shoulders willingly for our sake. Our sins were on that cross too. We added to the weight and Jesus carried it willingly as far as he could until he was broken and then he himself was put on the cross. So deny yourself. Take up your cross and then follow me. How do we follow Jesus? By doing exactly what he did. Dedicating our lives in service to our fellow man, dedicating our lives to the service of spreading the gospel as Jesus directed, 
sharing our lives, our hopes, our failures with others so that people can see that we're not gods. But our failures are only the next step towards success. Towards success. So a few weeks ago, I talked about that wonderful, wonderful lubricant that everybody sees and uses, WD-40. Use it on your car, you use it on the door hinges in your house, all of that, the rest. It stands for water displacement number 40. There were 39 failures for that formula before they came upon success where they had an oil that would, be, that would actually displace water rather than water displacing the oil. So those failures lead to successes. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep trying. Keep reaching for that goal that you have of following the Lord Jesus Christ in service, in the gospel, among your fellow man. Take up your cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life, if your life is that important that you're going to save your own life, you're going to to lose it. How many self-help books are there at the library? Countless. Countless. Overcome your addiction. Self-improvement. All of those things, it doesn't work without Jesus. It may work temporarily, but it's only temporarily, which means it doesn't work forever. You may get better, but you'll never be perfected without the Lord Jesus Christ. Whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. Putting our own old men, our old fleshly lusts to death, and picking up Jesus' purpose and his goal and his gospel to share it. That's what gives our lives purpose. That's what gives our lives hope. We begin to live his word. And we begin to follow his successes. His success on the cross, burying the old man, and then raised, being raised up in victory afterwards. That's what he asks us to do. In verse 26, he continues and he says, For what is a man profited? How are we profited if the man shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What's the cost? What's the cost that we could possibly pay to save our souls? Jesus did it because he had the power of the resurrection with him. We can follow him and we'll have that same power of resurrection being resurrected by him. By following his example. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? How many people do you know that sold their soul to the devil? What was the cost? What was the price they had to pay? Ask some of the people in Hollywood or in New York. Ask some of the people that are in sports. How many drugs do they have to take to alleviate the pain and the discomfort? How many doctors do they have to go see? How many psychiatrists? How many plastic surgeons? I'm just not happy with myself. Is that the life you want to save? Or is that the life you want to put aside? Being never satisfied has a great price that you have to pay because there's always something better that you're looking for from man. 
there's always something better that you're looking for from other people. And if you're looking for man to supply it, you will eventually be disappointed. Because man can supply nothing of any value or of any longevity to one another. Jesus supplies everything that we need for all eternity. Verse 27, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. This is a reference to Revelation chapter 19. He comes with His angels and he shall reward every man according to his works. It's judgment day. But I want to read Revelation 19 here at this point because it's a great opportunity to see who Jesus declares are his angels in verse 11, under the heading of the second coming of Christ in glory, he says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness doth he, does he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and in his, hand, in his head were many crowns. On his head, I'm sorry. There were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword." that with it it should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron, and he treaded the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is a vision that John saw. It is a vision of the post-rapture, after the rapture of the church. And it says in verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him on white horses. Armies, plural. There are two armies in heaven at this particular time. The first army is the host of angels. And the second army is the saints that were raptured up into heaven at the time of the rapture. There's that second army. And so that's what's being alluded to all the way back here in Matthew The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, plural, and he shall reward every man according to his works. There is some controversy in the church about verse 28. Some say that chapter 16 should have been cut off at verse 27. But he continues with verse 28 here for some reason. And those that believe it should be cut off at verse 27 tell us that chapter 17 should be, be the beginning of verse 28. So he continues, as verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I think the break took place here because of what it says in this next verse. Verse 1 of 17 says, And after six days, almost a full week,
After six days, Jesus taketh Peter and James and John his brother and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. What a wonderful, forgiving, merciful Savior. Jesus just got done rebuking Peter and told him, Get thee behind me, Satan. You're promoting the philosophy of hell that I shouldn't suffer. You're not discerning whether something is of God or something is of the heart of man. The Holy Spirit just blessed Peter with, a, with a, an insight of the fact that Jesus is the Son of the true and the living God. Then he's promoting the philosophy of hell. I think Jesus let him let all of that sink in for, for a week <laughs> because he had more to show Peter. We know Peter is, Peter is a, a primary character among the Gospels. He's a character in his own right. He's impulsive. He acts out in the flesh sometimes. But after six days, Jesus takes Peter and James and John, his brother. This is James the Greater and John, his brother. There are two, two apostles named James, James the Less and James the Greater, which referred to their physical presence, their size. But he takes Peter and James and John, his brother, these are the sons of Zebedee from the gospel, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. Now, we haven't moved from the region of Caesarea Philippi from a couple of cha oh, from verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, up along the northern region of right along the, the border, almost to, to Lebanon, as we call it today, is nearby a high mountain. It's the highest mountain in Israel. It is 9,800 feet in elevation. It is called Mount Hermon. It's still nearby. So Jesus takes them up into the mountain and was transfigured before them. His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. You may remember what I just read to you about his visage and how he looked in Revelation 19. The glory of God was upon him. His raiment was white as the light, and there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. There's no record of the conversation. We don't know what they said to one another. Obviously, it was between Moses and Elias and the Son of the true and the living God. It would have been a holy conversation. Two of the Old Testament saints, ones who had spent time with Jesus before he came to Bethlehem even. He was transfigured before him. His face did shine as the sun. His raiment was as white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them the disciples, the, these three apostles, Moses and Elias talking with him. Luke tells us a little bit more about this in, in his, in his uh, record of the event. But then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you will, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias, which is a shortened name for Elijah. Two great prophets are going to have their own tabernacles. 
and one for Jesus. I think Jesus probably would have been a little offended at this too because the prophets were raised up to his level of being the son. The apostles are still thinking in the flesh. They're still thinking about what they saw. They're still thinking about the voices that they heard but perhaps couldn't understand. And while he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son. It says nothing about Elias and Moses being there. The cloud overshadowed them and said, Look, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. This is my son. Listen up. Pay attention. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. This voice coming out of the cloud. Wow, somebody installed loudspeakers in here. No. It's that wonderful reverberating voice of God. God the Father himself. They fell on their face and they were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. Any time that the apostles found themselves in an unbelievable situation, whether it was out at the Sea of Galilee and Jesus calming the storm, walking on the water, coming into the upper room after the resurrection, fear came upon all of them on a frequent basis. And the first words Jesus would always say to them is, fear not. And then he would identify himself. And here he says the same thing because the voice of the Father is his voice as well. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of God. Don't be afraid of Jesus. He seeks nothing but our favor. And He seeks nothing for us but good. The prophet Jeremiah, my favorite verse, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29, verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to bring you to an expected end. God has nothing but good in mind for those that believe in him. And yet, the situations and circumstances of the earth the physicality of everything around us, it can get us a little off kilter in our relationship with God to desire to listen and to listen closely to what he has to say. Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man but Jesus only. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Jesus says, Arise, fear not. And the only thing they see is him. Moses is gone again. Elias is gone again. That overpowering voice overhead is gone again. The only one they see is Jesus after God says, This is my beloved son. Hear him. <laughs> We know that Jesus has the ability to rebuke and admonish his children. But so also does the Father directly intervene sometimes. <laughs> they only saw Jesus. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man is risen again from the dead. Keep this a secret 
don't tell anybody this vision. But this vision was given to Peter, who was martyred in Rome. James the Greater, who was martyred in, during Acts of the Apostles. And the only one left is the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation. He penned that at the moving and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus charged them, tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must come first? How come all the scribes and all of the holy people from the, the temple, why do they say Elias must come first? And Jesus answered them, and said, Elias truly shall come first and restore all things. That's what he's saying to them. That's what the scriptures, that's what the scribes have written about the restoration. But Jesus offers a word of correction. He says, but I say unto you, are you hearing me? Are you listening me? Listening to me? Jesus said, hear him. So, okay, apostles, disciples, Peter, James, and John, I say unto you that Eliza, Elias is come already, and they knew him not. Eliza has, Elias has already come, and they knew him not but have done unto him whatsoever they listed, whatever they desired. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, Then they understood. They put it together. Elias has already come, but they knew him not, but have done unto him whatever they wanted. And likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer under their hand. I'm going to suffer the same fate. They're going to execute me. He began to show them how he must go to Jerusalem how he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and how he must be killed for our sake. Many years ago at a, at a previous conference, we had a, a guest speaker who was a medical doctor, and he described what Jesus experienced when he was being tortured, when he was being flogged, when he was being nailed to the cross, what were the physical aspects of gravity as he hung on the cross for three hours, the anguish that he suffered, all so that we could find an entrance into heaven through him. He suffered more than any other man has ever suffered before or after. And he did that for us. It's a humbling thought. And it makes us realize that our sins are forgiven, but we have a debt to Jesus to follow him, to take up our cross daily, daily, putting self aside. It is a lifelong battle. As Paul tells us in his epistles, 
For the flesh and the spirit are contrary one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you should do or would do or desired to do. The flesh is strong. But Jesus is telling us and encouraging us to put the flesh aside every day and to follow him. The flesh will always have a draw on us because we are in the flesh. We are physical flesh and blood. But in his, in John's letter to the seven churches, letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, he tells all of the people that are in all of those churches, to him that overcometh will I give. And he has something special for each one of those different churches. But he encourages us that if we want that thing that we desire so greatly that we should be overcomers too. And those seven seven churches represent different phases of the church throughout the church age. The last one being the church at Laodicea. But he says, to him that overcometh will I give. So what is it that you desire? Peace? Reconciliation with him? Restoration of wholesome relationships? Want to have your your father's heart be turned to you and yours back to your father? It's that nucleus of the human family that is so important to who we think we are. And yet we put on other things that really aren't ours to put on. The Lord Jesus has something great in store for each and every person here today. For each and every person that listens to this teaching. When it goes up online, it'll be there forever. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> But this is what the Lord tells us. He says, be overcomers. He says, follow me. Let me lead you. Let me guide you. Give up all of the things that man tells you you should do. And as it says in Psalm 118, it is better to put your trust in the Lord than to put your trust in man. And the next verse says it is better to put your trust in the Lord than to put your trust in princes and kings, the leaders of the world. We can see where the leaders of the world have gotten us. We can read it in our newspapers and in our, in our media. We can listen to it online. We can watch it on television. It is corruption, corruption, corruption. of a divine presence that has the potential to live in our hearts and overcome all of our fleshly desires. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. More of him, less of us. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. Lord, as we finish, as we finish this chapter out next week, We'll see the conclusion. But Lord, we want to we want to savor what we covered just today. We want to let it sink deep into our souls and our hearts. We want to be better people for your sake. We want our lives to glorify you. It's a godly desire. And yet the flesh is always pulling us in the other direction. Lord, help us this week. Please help us this week. Lord, we pray that you would be with us continually. You said that you would never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, help us to call upon your name morning, noon, and night. We love you and we thank you. We thank you for this message this morning. And we ask that you just continue to lead us, continue to guide us, Spread your word however you want it spread. 
But Lord, let your word be spread over all nations and over all peoples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. God bless you. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. Be blessed in all the things you're doing and all your travels and everything else. And may the Lord just go before you. Have a wonderful day and a blessed week. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Morning Bible Study at Whitestone Christian Fellowship, taught by Pastor Bob Lorenz. To access the list of teachings or to check the archives for Pastor Bob's weekly observations column, log on to whitestonecf.com. There you can also check the weekly schedule and any upcoming events. To contact us or to drop a note to Pastor Bob, you can email us at whitestonecf at gmail.com or call us at 585-924-8820. Whitestone Christian Fellowship is a non-denominational congregation. Every Sunday, Pastor Bob walks us through the Bible, teaching line upon line and verse by verse. And we're located in the village of Victor, a little southeast of Rochester, New York. And if you're in the area, we invite you to visit us. From upstate New York, Pastor Bob encourages all of us to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. Until next time, remember that Jesus is our victor. Stay close to Him.